Recently, we saw what was arguably one of the worst ways to lose a UFC title when Rose Namunas and Carla Esparza rematched. And well, it got me thinking, how many times has this happened before? How often has a champion lost their belt due to a bad strategy, their refusal to make adjustments in a fight, ignoring the game plan, or just maybe not taking situations as seriously as they perhaps should? I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is 10 Frustrating Ways Champions Lost Their Belts. Number 10, Nate Marquardt versus Tarek Safadine. Is the bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Nate the Great Marquardt, hot off his release from the UFC and all jacked up on the good stuff, testosterone replacement therapy. Nate had been a king of pancreas before coming over to the UFC for five years, doing pretty well but always seemingly losing his title eliminator bouts. But he dropped 170 pounds, went on TRT, but failed the medicals and so the UFC released him. You know, there's a difference between testosterone replacement therapy and where you get it to a level where, you know, it's performance enhancing. Nate's done. I'm done with Nate. He ended up in strike force in a display of extreme violence, challenged the then undefeated Tyron Woodley for the vacant title and pummeled him into unconsciousness in the fourth round. Tarek Safadine was next in line for a title shot of the strike force belt, so the fight was booked for January 2013, the last ever strike force card. Everyone expected Nate to do what he did to Woodley, pressure him, look for takedowns and unload those furious combinations, but Safadine was having none of it and from the opening round started blasting Nate with leg kicks, which he had some real trouble avoiding. He didn't really check any of them, couldn't throw anything as a counter, and any time he did switch stance, it just didn't help at all. Every time he landed, it was followed with a sickening thwack and chorused oohs from the crowd. All we could do was watch five rounds of tree chopping, and with Nate finding no way to address them until Tarek took the unanimous decision. After the fight, Marquardt said he trains with guys from Thailand and checks leg kicks all day, but for whatever reason, he just wasn't able to do it on fight night. They put it down to a mental issue and overlooking Safadine, but also admitted in a tweet that, yeah, he should have checked those kicks. Number nine, Kane Velasquez versus Fabricio Verdum. Cardio Kane, eh? That bloke that basically turned the heavyweight division of the UFC into Joey Diaz after filming the longest yard. Yeah, man had stamina. Opponents would just wither in front of him after about two minutes of action. So when we all found out he would be defending his heavyweight title for the first time in two years in Mexico City, where we've already seen the 2,000 meter altitude would affect even the cardio of David Goggins, most of us thought, well, you might as well be fighting Freddy Krueger in your own dreams. That's his realm, baby. But what actually happened? Well, yeah, it was more of a nightmare. Fabrizio Verdun was the interim champion, and he'd had a pretty goddamn good career resurgence. He also had the right idea and showed up to Mexico a month out from the fight to adjust to the climate and altitude. Kane arrived just two weeks before the day of the fight. It kicked off and Kane wasted no time putting his usual pace on Fabrizio, but the Brazilian stood his ground and fired back. Kane was constantly working, but Verdun remained calm, and even Goldberg and Rogan mentioned at the end of the first round how bad and tired he looked. Kane Velasquez is breathing hard big time. It'd been 600 days since his last fight, which I'm sure didn't help, but Fabrizio in his corner knew he was slowing and Cardio Kane became sea level Kane. His endurance apparently not holding up at the higher altitude. That and Verdum kept constantly punching him in the face. Corner advice before the third was that Kane had to take him down and that's what he did, but it was laboured. He didn't pass guard while completing the double leg and he landed right in Verdum's god killer guillotine. He lost his title and his greatest weapon had failed him. Some fans admitted they were upset feeling like he wasn't serious enough about acclimatising to the altitude and were frustrated while watching the apparent heavyweight goat succumb in front of his home crowd. He admitted at the post-fight press conference that he should have arrived earlier than two weeks but agreed, you really do have to give props to Vadoom for this one as well. Number 8 Rampage Jackson versus Forrest Griffin Sure, I was a fan of Rampage and Pride, how could you not be? But unfortunately he could never get past Vandalay, so never became a champion. But by the time he made it to the UFC he was on a three fight win streak, then he KO'd Chuck and claimed the belt for himself and he even defended it and unified the Pride in UFC titles. But that was about to change 
strange because at UFC 86, he looked to defend his title against Forrest Griffin. Now, Forrest was a tough competitor, a well-rounded guy, one of the most loved, but Rampage had the experience, the power, and the unified pride in UFC title belts. The fight started, and from the get-go, you could tell Forrest was trying to keep it on the outside and blast away with leg kicks, which is a great strategy against a lead leg-heavy boxer like Rampage, who also kind of has a history of not really checking leg kicks. Every time the kick landed, you could feel the growing frustration of Jackson's fan base. Those that expected him to just march through them and powerbomb Forrest, or the more realistic fans just calling for him to try and check them rather than shrug them off. Give me a hug. No way. Come here. I'm not coming over there. Let's go. Forget it. But Forrest kept setting them up and timing them very well, and Rampage wasn't able to close the distance check or really dissuade Griffin in any way and ended up spending the fight chasing him around the cage. I believe it was Judge Sissel Peoples that said you can't win a fight with leg kicks, except, oh wait, yes you can, and Forrest Griffin is a UFC champion now. Which, yeah, frustrated a lot of Rampage fans. He certainly tried, landed a few good punches of his own, but couldn't catch Forrest and followed him around getting corralled like he's at the BMF ranch. He admitted post-fight that the leg kicks had caused him an injury and more than that caused him to also lose his focus. Number seven, Tyrone Woodley versus Kamaru Usman. Your opinion on Tyron Woodley in MMA probably depends wildly on when you started watching the sport. The last three years of his combat sports career have seen him take some pretty big L's, but at one point, he was the three-time defending welterweight champion. Yeah, he had some duff performances. The second Thompson fight was a very slow-paced technical battle. He didn't do much of anything but shut down Meyer. Still beat him, though, but after that, he blasted Darren Till inside of two rounds in what was probably his best performance as a champion. His next fight would be against Kamaru Usman at UFC 235, where he went from perhaps the best fight of his career to to arguably his worst. Usman had been dominating the majority of the roster at 170, but no one was quite sure exactly how a fight against a champion would play out. I mean, Tyrone was the favorite going into the fight. Woodley had started to adopt a strategy of backing up, looking to time the right hand or drive double legs across the cage. It's just against Usman, all that did was put his back on the fence, right where he wanted him, and basically where he kept him for the most of the fight. After the first round, Dean Thomas told Woodley immediately, you absolutely have to go forward, you cannot back up, which is pretty much the advice any armchair casual would have shouted at him if they could, but Tyrone just couldn't put that plan into action. He kept backing up, looking to time the big right hand, and every time, Usman would just pressure him to the fence and continue his work. His game plan just wasn't working, and for fans of Tyrone that saw him as the best welterweight on the planet, they couldn't help but feel a little disappointed. Disappointing. After the second round, Usman had landed more strikes than Woodley would in the entire fight. Usman took his title and, to be fair, has gone on to be one of the most dominant welterweight champions ever. Post-fight, Woodley kind of just explained he knew what he was doing wrong, but just couldn't help it. But sometimes the greatest champions have to face adversity and bounce back and win, so I'm looking to try to run that fight back. Number six, Mark Coleman versus Maurice Smith. UFC 1 taught us Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was the best martial art for embarrassing everyone else's. But then Mark Coleman came along and showed us that wrestling, yeah, that shit also works, especially when you add enough ground and pound to flatten a Nordic god. But Maurice Smith was a kickboxer, one of the striking arts. Hackerman. He's the most powerful hacker of all time. Which at the time of UFC 14 didn't really seem to do that well in MMA, at least when faced with a skilled grappler. Well, Smith was about to rewrite that story. Coleman was 6-0 at this point in MMA. He dominated UFC 10, 11, and 12 and was considered pretty much the most ferocious competitor in the history of the UFC. His ground and pound was so ruthless, if you were a Just Bleed fan, it was as irresistible as the latest Nature is Metal video. Coleman walked out with all his belts held high, ready to defend his title as the best mixed martial artist around. And in 30 seconds, he'd already taken Maurice down and started dropping ground and pound. But then as the clock ticks on and Mark kind of just lays on Maurice, he seems to slowly sap his own energy. Which, if you were a fan of Coleman, was pretty frustrating to see, especially if you're one of those guys cage side just screaming, You can do it! 
Kick him in his hairy ball! Before the first round ended, though, Maurice found a way back to his feet a few times, and as it turns out, it's pretty hard to block punches when you can't even lift your arms. It went into overtime, and it was easy pickings for Smith. Coleman could barely stand up, let alone shoot a takedown, and later called it the most humbling night of his life. Maurice took the unanimous decision and the heavyweight title, laying out the game plan to beat those competitors with more muscles and red blood cells. Number 5. Amanda Nunes vs Juliana Pena most people believe that after she beat Ronda Rousey and defended the women's bantamweight belt three times, the Lioness had laid her claim as the greatest female fighter to ever grace an octagon. There was only one other person who could challenge her for that title, though, Chris Cyborg. And when Amanda KO'd her at UFC 232, it also probably could have made this list, as Cyborg somewhat recklessly charged forward and was put to sleep. But it's her fight with Juliana Pena that some fans arguably found even more frustrating. Going into the fight, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that Nunes was a better striker. Also, arguably, the better grappler had more power, more weapons, heck, maybe even more cardio. But as Rogan points out in the first minute, Julie had to make it a brawl. Yeah. Amanda kept the fight on the outside at first. She dropped Julie. She was dominating the grappling exchanges, threatening with submissions. It wasn't looking good for Pena. But that's not how the second round went down. Not at all. I want to fight you. The fuck is that, man? Juliana landed the left hand early, and Nunes kept loading up on her right to give it back. As DC said on commentary, if she starts to chase a knockout, she'll fatigue. And that's exactly what she started doing. Amanda refused to take a step backwards no matter how many times she was clipped on the chin, and the more she tried to exchange with Julie, the more she got tagged, and the more she slowed down. The game plan that had beat Cyborg was now being used against her. We'd seen Amanda behave like a cold, calculated, efficient killer. She'd outplayed some of the greatest women's martial artists of all time, but at UFC 269, all that went out the window for pure hunting instincts. She did reveal post-fight that she'd been dealing with knee issues during the camp, but she didn't want to look bad and pull out of the fight, so took it anyway, which she said was her biggest mistake. Juliana took her title, but we'll see how the rematch goes. Number 4. Conor McGregor vs Eddie Alvarez We were all promised going into UFC 205 that Santa Claus isn't real. Excuse me, uh, the, uh, the fuck did you just say? And that was a shame, really, because we had our own Irish version handing out double-barreled shotgun smacks instead of presents last year and desperately hoped we'd avoided the naughty list long enough to see him give out some more and maybe claim a second UFC title in the process. At least that's what fans of The Notorious wanted to see. Eddie was determined, though, to prove his success in the UFC so far had been due to easy matchups, fighting non-grapplers, and not someone clearly as high hardcore and badass as he was. Object to the test! I mean, he did just dust RDA to claim the belt. The betting lines had Connor as the favourite, though, and although Eddie was no slouch on the feet, the general consensus was that he needed to push the pace and definitely at least try to incorporate some of his high-level wrestling. Eddie got off to a fast start and banged a few inside kicks, but was quickly lulled into a slow-paced technical boxing match, and he did exactly what Connor wanted him to do. Circle to his right and throw the right hand. Every time he did, Connor would slip and rip with three or four punches that clattered off Eddie's dome. After the first knockdown, he probably realised he had already waited too long to start wrestling, the Mark Henry game plan also didn't involve circling into Connor's left hand, but that's something he admitted to doing after the fight and also said it sickened him to watch the tape back. He kept circling to his right to the frustration of many fans everywhere that wanted to see Connor lose and eventually ran into McGregor's left hand one too many times. He was TKO'd in the second and the champ champ was crowned. Number 3. Anderson Silva vs Chris Weidman where were you the night Anderson Silva was defeated? Where was Gondal when the Westfall fell? Me personally, I was locked in my university dorm room, 3am, shrouded in darkness, watching what I thought was impossible unfold. Why are you so sweaty? I was watching carbs. I'd only been following the sport for three years at that point, so for me, the concept of Anderson Silva actually losing an MMA fight, well, it was impossible. And that's the moment I learned anything can happen in MMA. No, no, no. Actually, I learned that from the rematch. I mean, goddamn. Oh, oh, oh. 
Either way, at UFC 162, Anderson Silva was looking to make his 11th title defense against the undefeated Chris Weidman, who double-legged and elbowed his way up the middleweight division. Trust me, if you weren't there, seeing Anderson Silva behave like Neo inside the octagon every six months, flawlessly finishing literally everyone, kind of gave you the impression that this fight would be no different, and part of Anderson's style has always been to taunt his opponents, throw some flim-fam, make him freeze up, and then punish him. About two or three things. Two or three? Stuff that we thought was maybe illegal that's not illegal, and... Stuff like that. We'd seen his antics a little overplayed in the latest and Maya fights, but neither of them really had the power of Chris or the bravery, to be honest. So when Silva started taunting Weidman, it wasn't that surprising. But what most fans were annoyed with was that he was doing it when he wasn't even really winning the fight. He was just pointing to his face and asking Chris to hit him, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, he even gave him a kiss at the end of the first round. His corner told him to calm down, perhaps sensing things weren't quite right, whereas Weidman was told to punch a hole in his fucking chest. That's what I want. Chris marched forward past the inflatable armed tube man and socked him right in the face. I guess he can't play games in the octagon. Number 2. Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling The departure of Henry Cejudo left the bantamweight division in more chaos than the fall of Troy. Yes, Piotr Jan beat Jose Aldo and claimed a vacant title, and although he looked like the Terminator doing it, there were plenty of other T-800s waiting in the wings for their chance at gold. So when Aljamain Sterling was booked against Jan at UFC 259, at least we could finally crown the undisputed king. Except, oh no, wait, like the bastard son returning on Coronation Day to ruin the merrymaking, we didn't exactly get a new era of peace and prosperity. We got... Judgment Day. Okay, that's far too extreme, but instead of just taking Aljo's motorbike and sunglasses halfway through the fourth round in a fight that seemed to be going his way, Yan illegally need Aljo in the face. I know, right? Imagine that. Finally, Piotr had a chance to prove he's undisputedly the best in the weight class, definitively stamp his name as champion. A chance to bring peace and prosperity to his new empire. It's my new empire. Your new empire? Well, sorry, Yan fans, we didn't get a definitive end to their contest. Piotr lost his title, and like Tommen inheriting the Game of Thrones, well, no one really gave Aljo any credit. Needless to say, the entire situation was frustrating, and talk about an aggravating way to lose a title. Number 1. Rose Namajunas vs Carla Esparza 2 and here we are at the fight that inspired this list. Well done for making it this far. Rose's performance at UFC 274 was frustrating for a number of reasons, but for most fans, it's mainly because her career had been so full of jaw-dropping moments. The Brazilian jiu-jitsu assault she put on Paige Van Zandt, her flawless slaying of the fabled Boogie Woman, her Kevin Bacon-like footwork in the Jessica Andrade fights. And the one-minute head kick shut down in the first Whaley fight. In another time and place, it might as well have been the 12 labors of Hercules. The point is, we'd seen what Rose was capable of. Greatness, for lack of a better word. So how in the hell did this happen? It was a rematch of their first fight almost eight years ago where Carla was able to take down and control Rose. Throughout their second fight, Rose seemed far more concerned on defense instead of offense, and her corner pat Barry only spurred her on by telling her she was doing the right things. She threw less strikes across the full 25 minutes than she did in her fight with Michelle Waterson, and she ended that one in the second round. Pat insisted that she stuck to the game plan, which was supposed to result in booze from the crowd, which apparently meant she was doing it correctly. Um, if Rose gets in there and you stick to your strategy, if you come in there and you do what you are supposed to do, 
the crowd's probably not going to like it. It also meant making sure you don't get taken down at all costs. She was just waiting for her to make a mistake, and Carlo was basically doing the same thing. Rose landed just four significant strikes in the first round and three in the second, and ended up losing her title by way of inactivity. Understandably frustrating as a fan to watch someone who's capable of some of the greatest feats in women's MMA spend 25 minutes trying to avoid losing. I'm sure Rose will be back, but Pat Barry's post-fight explanation might have been more confusing than the performance itself. I'm Bailey from Around Point, and yes, we are finally here in our brand new office. Let's go check it out. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to our MMA Challenge of the Week. Today, I'm joined by the greatest referee in the world, Mr. Mark Goddard. Would, I would punch him straight in the back of the fucking head. That's right, a brand new channel with brand new content. Welcome to Fight Front, the home of personality-driven MMA. Today, it's an MMA challenge where I take the worst-rated UFC character in UFC Undisputed 3 all the way to the heavyweight championship of the world. And I'm reacting to Colin McGregor. Make sure you scroll on down and hit subscribe because you do not want to miss all the new content coming your way on this brand new channel. And hey, it's me, Tommy Toehold, and I'm rolling around on a damn monitor. A big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further. And I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.